0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Ethics of Research. My guest today is Melanie Eng, who is a third-year PhD candidate in the History Department at the University of Toronto, a Harney Graduate Research Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and a museum educator at the Royal Ontario Museum. Our dissertation takes a trans-Pacific perspective to studying the role of clandestine Chinese migrants in contesting and subverting the category of legal-slash-illegal in Canada and the United States during the 20th century, weaving together archival documents and oral history to analyze the various ways in which Chinese migrants' strategies of passing as legal were performed. Her research explores how passing could simultaneously function to threaten sovereign power by subverting its legal categories at some times, while at others, reinforce those same legal systems. Apart from her dissertation research, she has also worked on analyzing anti-Asian racism in Canada during COVID-19. Here is our conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much, Melanie, for taking the time. I know you're very busy working on your dissertation and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm
1: excited to finally get to talk to somebody about research.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's start with uh, something that our listeners might not know about, which is what is the topic of your PhD dissertation? And how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah,
1: um, so I'm, I'm in the Department of History. So my dissertation is very history focused. Mm -hmm. Um, And and at at this point, at least in my, (laughs) in my, uh, dissertation process, it, my dissertation is looking at migration to and through uh, Canada, the US and, and China, particularly the southern region of China mm-hmm. um, during the late 19th to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing is focusing on like, you know, a cyclical phenomena of what I've been terming clandestine Chinese migration uh, and trans-Pacific and transnational imperial and nation-state migration laws mm-hmm. and policy. Uh, which is a really kind of jumbled long way, I guess, to describe uh, kind of like the twofold mission of what I'm trying to accomplish. So um, from one perspective, I really want to focus on people and Mm -hmm. community and Mm migrant-centered. So, you know, what did the impact of racial immigration laws and policies have on Chinese migrants identity uh, in the first place, Um, but also from from the sources that I've been looking at and from people I've been able to interview, what impact does Chinese people's subversion of law have Mm -hmm. on settler state law? So like Mm -hmm. it's a cyclical process. And then what are the limits of this uh, of this Chinese migrant resistance through subversion of law when those very laws are part of a colonial order Mm -hmm. that occurs on stolen indigenous land? So
0: You know, twofold, but also kind of triangulating different subjectivities there. Yeah. So then tell us what kind of research methods. Um, are you fond of, or are you using for your dissertation, right? Because it seems like you're, like you mentioned, it's, it's a layered, it seems like it's a layered project. So uh, do you use qualitative methods, quantitative methods? Do you have a preference for one over the other? Um, and why? If there, if you do, then why? Yeah, why you- yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. And again, uh, I'm going to start from like the disciplinary uh, angle. So, um, you know, this, this might be a result of my training as someone in history, but we love our qualitative methods yeah. uh, in, in history. We we, we love description, uh, primary source evidence, being able to kind of build a story mm-hmm. of the people or the events that we're we're, we're trying to understand better. Um, um, because in in history and and in my research specifically, you know, context is very important to understanding the, the significance, cause and effect, and correlation of um of our topics of our subjects because nothing in history happens in a vacuum yeah Uh, and and i think the reason why i love qualitative so much is that when we when we're able to create richer descriptions of the past whether Mm -hmm. it be through you know case study analysis um uh it it helps us better understand um how we got here in in the present, and, and I'm not saying the past is a blueprint to fix the present's mm-hmm. problems, uh, but it's it's a really really good start. Um, and and for my research in particular, you know, I I, I look at Chinese immigration and migration, um, and I start in the late 19th century, but the nature and the and the impacts of you know exclusionary migration laws mean that um, mean that the experience of migration is very generational. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know while I use qualitative methods through primary sources, looking at uh, state documents, uh, interrogation case files, um, because the the impact of 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 um, racial racially exclusionary migration policy creates kind of a generational leg in terms of people who are able to to move from place to place. The great thing about my research is that I can also use oral history method. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of my favorite qualitative methods. I <laughs> get to speak to people yeah. and then not just get that historical description, but really think about memory yeah. uh, and, and personal experience. Uh, so yeah, big big fan of qualitative. Oral history is, is, is the best.
0: <laughs> so um, are there uh, specific ethical guidelines that you had to follow as per your IRB, specifically with the oral history method, right? Because here you are talking to people um and you know getting their perspectives and also you know how do you find them how do you make sure you know that they want to participate yeah all of those things so how did you did you have to do any of that uh in yeah your work?
1: yeah for for sure um, <laughs> especially you're absolutely right especially with oral history you're working yeah. with real live people yeah. uh so so you know passing your research ethic board is is really important mm-hmm. um Up to now, most of the oral history information um, stories I have collected were collected as part of my master's Mm -hmm. uh, cognate research. Um, So so I'll I'll start with that because for my PhD dissertation, I'm still undergoing my research ethics board Mm -hmm. uh, uh, clearance. And um, in, in order to make sure that I'm you know, treating people properly, mm-hmm. not, you know, putting anyone at uh, undue risk. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite a vigorous application. To yeah. Out. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's some, there's some things uh, that that might seem quite common sense. So uh, ensuring that if, if, if the people that you're interviewing want to remain anonymous, that mm-hmm. there are steps in place um, that, that, Uh, I can be held accountable to doing so Um, but one of one of the things that um, I didn't actually anticipate uh, until until later on uh, and and it's it's very silly that I didn't but um, I think I I began my research looking at the early 19th century instead of going to the mid-19th century and I study clandestine immigration and migration which is my way of saying you know people who came to Canada and the US maybe not through typical legal channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I had uh, I had to be very, you know, wary that um, people who I was especially talking to face to face, that I wasn't endangering their their immigration status or their mm. citizenship status. Mm. You know, when I started my project out and it was focused on people in the early 20s, that wasn't so much of a problem. Yeah, uh, because you know, most of them are are no longer with us, but but because I've extended into the mid 20th century, people are still alive yeah. and they have, um, you know, descendants who are still alive. Uh, so so I had to do a lot of due diligence, you know, going through Canadian and U.S. immigration laws. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to uh, a lawyer to make sure that I, I wasn't, you know, risking anyone's citizenship status. Yeah. And that, now the good news is that in, in Canada, We've got a statute of limitations okay. on uh on uh what the what the law terms as and I'm paraphrasing here but uh contraventions of immigration guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um so I I I have to double check it, it's in my uh REB report, but I, I think it's something like uh, after 10 years you're you're fine. Okay. Um, okay. Um and and the other thing is there were four. Um, because clandestine Chinese migration was so common in Canada, and the government realized this, um, you know, by the time of the 1970s, there was a citizen, there was a, it was called the status adjustment program, Mm -hmm. meaning that if you did potentially have, you know, unconventional ways of entering the country prior to then, you could get amnesty um, if you applied for it. So, Fortunately for for, for my Canadian context, um, I was able to, you know, really hammer down that nobody's uh, legal status would be at risk uh, (laughs) for Mauritius. Now the U.S. is completely different. Uh, Those who specifically focus on, you know, things like U.S. border security uh, probably know better than I do, but from what I've been able to tell, there is no statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. on contraventions of immigration policy Um, so it's it's a bit trickier with ethics there but but again um, it kind of making sure that I'm not putting anyone at legal risk Mm -hmm. um, my supervisor and I strategized a way to ensure that the people who I'd be interviewing Mm -hmm. um, had either um, you know been born in the U.S. meaning that they had citizenship by birth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and their uh, their ancestors have now passed, um, or two, um, that, that, that they did, uh, that they were able to get amnesty from the U.S. Uh, uh, status adjustment program, I think it was called the confession program mm-hmm. um, there, so that, that was a major, I think that was the biggest kind of ethical thing I had to, uh, had to, you know, really, really process and think through really carefully in in terms of my oral history part yeah uh, of my research but you know on, on on the other side aside from just legal things you know when you do oral history you're talking to real people yeah and and, and I think you know you, it's very important that as a researcher you're treating people like people are not yeah. subjects yeah so making sure that you know while Um, you're you're interested in in building a relationship from them because you want to learn from them there's 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 some things that you know while you might be curious about you have to ask ask yourself well is this productive for my work is this going to have the effect of you know re-traumatizing yeah so yeah. so you know there's a, the very on paper kind of ethics board things yeah. I have to take into consideration but also you know treat people like people yeah why am I doing this research who is this helping Yeah. is this
0: productive
1: uh, or not so
0: yeah we'd bring yeah, us to that that the is... next question because you you said that you uh, while you're going through the process for your phd dissertation you have done some oral history interviews for your master's right so when mm-hmm. you were doing those ones you were actually in the field um what happened during that time because I'm assuming that was your first time when you were actually going in the field so what happened there were there some things that you didn't know before and then you went through it and like oh yeah I should do that next time better or I should be more careful like were there unexpected things that happened the first time you went into the field or talking yeah to people? so
1: <laughs> for for my master's um I was young (laughs) and 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 idealistic (laughs) and idealistic but also very lucky I was incredibly lucky in my masters um because I I actually didn't come across anything in my oral history interviews that 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 I um or where I could have put somebody at risk so Mm -hmm. I, I was very lucky that way you know I I had um really good Uh, 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 professor mentors who you know were able to tell me what not to do and what to do Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, in terms of the oral history stuff so so no I I was very lucky that I I didn't come across anything uh, unexpected in a negative way when I first started doing fieldwork in my master's most things that were unexpected were actually quite exciting Mm (laughs) because you know I I I I think it's always exciting when you when you you learn something new that you didn't expect. But it it was also really good in teaching me or or reminding me that in historical practice, uh, yes, we make really grand uh, proposals when we're trying to get funding for our research. But uh, and 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 in part of that proposal process, you have to make some assumptions. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. when something unexpected comes and and breaks your assumptions, you get to go back and be like. Why did I think that? Yeah. Why you know, why did I assume that? Was it from my own kind of lapse in uh, due diligence or or is this a bigger bias in the field in in the past scholarship that you know happens either from or that has to do with past scholars' positionality and experience or or maybe or maybe I'm really lucky and I've been able to find piece of information that no one has before and this mm-hmm. changes our field in a certain way so 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 from that perspective you know unexpected things have have turned out quite good for me um to 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 branch out from what I was talking about about oral history methods so uh, one really unexpected thing for me in my dissertation uh is 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 um I'm trying to get access to a bunch of case files mm. uh, from the library because of canada and you know because these are immigration case files i'm looking for they're covered by the privacy act mm. so they should be um along with different government policies and correspondences and transcripts and uh if anyone's ever done research with lac or had to deal with uh Access to Information and Privacy Act request. LEC <laughs> uh, <laughs> is always underfunded, so it is not there, it is not the individual people's fault, but it means when you're filing for access to restricted files, it can take months. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that that there's an example of when you know unexpected things are are not so great. You know, COVID happens and then it makes the process even longer. But you know, again, you just you just try and do your best., yeah. <laughs> no, you, you just, I, I, it, it meant a lot of going over my existing sources and being like, okay, can I do I have enough here to to begin to make a, a robust argument? Um, it would be great to get those LAC sources, but at this point, I'm going to think of them um, as, as a bonus if yeah. I can get them. <laughs> and, and you know, staying positive because I know the archivists are out there working really hard.
0: So I, you mentioned something about positionality, right? Like uh, sometimes it's the positionality of previous scholars. Maybe they missed something or they framed the issue a certain way and you go into the field with that assumption. So in your experience, do you think your positionality um, helped or hindered your access to certain individuals that you wanted to talk about?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> Did my positionality help or hinder? So uh, I know this is a podcast, so... So <laughs> maybe I should describe myself yeah. a little bit. So yeah. uh, again, I study Chinese immigration to Canada and the U.S. at at a period of time where the majority of Chinese immigration or Chinese immigrants and migrants are coming from Guangzhou, the southern area of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I got interested in this research is is because it 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 really is the history of my own family. So. Mm-hmm you know, in terms of well, what's my positionality in this research, role, you know, people I study are fascinating historical uh, figures, uh, but they're also, you know, if not actually my family, people who I see my family reflected mm-hmm. in. Uh, and, and, and because of that, I, I think my positionality as someone who is very personally and closely connected to people that that I look at um, in many ways, it's been been very helpful. Mm. Uh, I, I jokingly call it the Asian Dad Network. <laughs> um, so when I've been looking for people to interview, people who might have stories and experienced the, the different phenomena that I'm studying, well, all I have to do, or not all I have to do, but 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 an easy place for me to start was talking to my family and then asking them who they know,
2: mm.
1: and you know, finding uh, finding. A, a pool of participants that way okay. uh, so from that aspect being so closely connected has helped me um, or has, has given me a bit of a head start in being able to establish trust okay. uh, yeah. with a vulnerable community which is which is so so yeah so important you know there's this big long history of different vulnerable communities um very diverse vulnerable communities who who don't necessarily trust you know institutions yeah yeah. For many reasons, historical yeah. racism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> included, because <laughs> when when there's been trust before it hasn't necessarily worked out well for them. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, so so being being part of the community and studying has been very helpful. Um uh there there have been times though where um when I'm when I'm explaining my research, when I'm uh when I was drafting my, um, uh, my interview guide questions, I, I I did have to remember that, um, because I'm so close to, uh, communities that I'm studying, we share certain assumptions.
2: Yeah. So there's
1: some things that, you know, I wouldn't think twice about because I already understand it. Yeah. Or I already know it or different terms that I've grown up with. So I get Mm -hmm. it. But if I want to be able to communicate my research right. to a wider audience, I have to, I have to, you know, kind of set my mind from, uh, well, what would the general public know? Uh, so it's it's been a bit of an interesting exercise. Uh, there, there have been times where I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to workshop some of my things, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, well, I, I don't really know if I have a good enough or strong enough argument here like it's, it's kind of like a what i call a, a duh point
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's been really helpful to have people who 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 do not share my experience to, to tell me well that's that's not a duh point it <laughs> it, it is new it, yeah. it is you know productive so um yeah pros and cons I, I would say mostly pros for for being able to be so close to my to my research
0: so melanie then do you then compartmentalize you yourself as a researcher versus you yourself as a person because I'm because you just said you're so close to the to the topic that you're studying it is also Mm -hmm. emotionally heavy right like you were talking like historically what has happened and um maybe you want to see you also see how some of these things happen today you know when we talk about migrants how is that how is that like for you as a person right do you do you have a Melanie researcher mode that you switch off, and then Melanie person <laughs> mode, or is it that it's always together and you just cannot separate the two? Yeah,
1: that's like that's another really
0: good question, and thank you for asking.
1: Thank you for asking it. It's something that you're absolutely right, especially in the past few years, I've had to to deal with sometimes in good ways for me, sometimes in ways that I need to improve on. Um, you know. I, with COVID going on, everyone is struggling, but, but I think, uh, Asian communities have been increasingly targeted by anti-Asian race, racism. Yeah. Uh, they have always been targeted by anti-Asian racism. There mm-hmm. has always been anti-Asian violence. Uh, but you know, when, when, when COVID began, uh, people who had harbored latently, um, racist views took it as an excuse yeah. to you know to to quote unquote justify yeah. their 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 racist thinking mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden and, and I, I think this is where you're getting out with yeah. the question all of a sudden you know um, violence against Asian people um, a diversity of Asian people has has been very much on the rise and uh, when COVID started, I had been in my conflict reading about histories of violence against Chinese migrants, and mm-hmm. I'd see in the news um, women, you know, being murdered in Atlanta. Yeah. I'd see yeah. uh, Chinese ancestors or Chinese uh, elders being beat up mm-hmm. on the streets. And then, and then in the readings I was doing, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read about anti-Chinese riots where people are smashing businesses. Just like they were doing in the past few years, I, I was reading about lynching of Chinese people, yeah. who, and I didn't know about that before either. So, so you're right; it was very, very hard, and and it is very, very hard, um, especially. You know, you're not just reading about people in the past; you're yeah. reading about real people yeah. with, with with families and emotions, and then and then on top of that, you're reading about people who you know could have been related to you. <laughs> yeah, my family's has a long history of immigration they could have been my family and uh admittedly when I when when I first started I was very bad at separating I, I couldn't do it I yeah. was you know I, I'd have to take breaks yeah uh, from reading because I, I like I even talking about it now, I can like feel myself yeah. getting shaky yeah. <laughs> so you know I taking breaks from reading and learning that it was okay as as Melanie, a person and a researcher, to be the same person and Mm -hmm. and to take time away from research for for my own well-being um, was was something really important. I I, I had to learn. Um, uh, Unplugging from current events and news was Mm -hmm. was something that uh, I started doing. Um, And and it it wasn't an easy, it's not something easy to do for many reasons. One, because social media and the news is everywhere. So so it's hard to run away from it but but also I think you know from someone who who tries to have the work be community oriented it it at times felt like if I was turning off the news I was ignoring something yeah or yeah. if I was turning off the news it was like well you know people who have been personally physically affected by this can't turn off the news so why should I be able to do that like that's my privilege to do yeah. that um but then, you know, with, with some very smart people that I talked to, I learned that if you are burnt out yourself, you are no help to anyone else. And, and that's something that's been very hard for me to learn. And, that, and I'm still mm-hmm. working on it. Um, but, you know, just because I'm shutting the news off doesn't mean I'm tuning everything out. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean I'm not being informed. I'm taking a break for now mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, kind of recover a bit, collect myself. And, yeah. uh, and, and in the future, when you know, I've been able to, to manage my own mental health and emotions, then figure out how to better process and, and, and um, move on and, 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 you know, do some good work mm-hmm. from there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just tuning, tuning out with the news and, and, and I know this sounds, the, the last thing I'll say about, you know, how to, how to compartmentalize it, but the last thing I'll say about it is I, I heard over and over and over, when you start grad school, you got to come up with a hobby, and a yeah. hobby that is completely <laughs> not related to your research, you know, get outside, yeah. touch some grass, <laughs> but, but, and, you know, when I actually finally, you know, took the time to figure out that I... Really like to go bouldering. Mm-hmm. I realized that there's nothing better to get your mind off how you know heavy your research is, how mm-hmm. heavy every day is, than clinging for dear life <laughs> in our climbing gym. <laughs> so that's, that's you know to end, on, to end on a lighter note there. Yeah. Um, just getting some physical activity out of the office, out of the archive, out of you know the social media and media that's so directly connected to my research,
0: mm-hmm. and so. Mary, now that you, you talked about, right, you come across these views, you talked about the violence that has happened against
2: mm-hmm.
0: Asian migrants, but also you talked about the latent views, right? Which are day-to-day, like people have them, right? And sometimes they are now expressing themselves in violence. So when you come across these views, right? Um, both mm-hmm. the, the, the ones that support violence and the others who might say, yeah, like, you know, I'm not violent, but, and then, you know, some kind of justification how do you feel about those people? Like, you know, like, like does that make you feel that, you know, you should know better, you know, just because we live in a a diverse society? Or do you think that, you know, there's just like misinformation? It's like, like, what is like, when you, when you hear these views, or I don't know if you've ever had this yourself that if you're presenting your research and somebody Mm -hmm. was, you know, like heckled you or talked to you that way. Like, what do you? How does that make you feel, right, When You're just coming across these views, um, in right. in your day-to-day research uh, activities. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, it's another really good, really tricky <laughs> question. And and if it's okay, I think I'll kind of answer it in in two parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um. So so from, so, so say in one scenario, um, I'm going about my day to today, not in research, but mm-hmm. living my day-to-day life, and yeah. and because I live my life as you know uh, a visibly yeah. non-white person yeah um, and, and unfortunately I you know I, I run into people with yeah um, anti Chinese views, anti-immigrant views, anti-migrant views and, yeah. and 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 in those cases, when I'm running into these uh, expressions of racism, it, it's not to have a discussion. It's mm-hmm. someone yelling at me on the street.
2: Yeah,
1: it's, yeah, it's having to watch uh, someone vandalizing. Asian property, right? And and it makes me feel really angry. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know, it makes me feel angry. It makes me feel threatened. Um, uh, and and, and in those cases, in in day to day, it really depends on, you know, the scenario. The, the scenario depends on my response. So, so mm. in some cases, I've kind of, you know, said something back, yelled back, mm. like, well, that's really ignorant. Why why would you think that? Yeah, what yeah. makes you say that? Yeah. Um, but but un- but unfortunately, uh, often when those things happen in my day to day life, it's not safe for me yeah. to yeah. say anything. The best I can do is remove myself from the situation um, or if it's me witnessing it to somebody else, you know, go over to that person and focus my you know, attention on them. Mm-hmm. Um, because because in instances like those, the, the person who's yelling things at us, at other people, they're not interested in having a conversation. Yeah. If they were interested in a conversation, they wouldn't be yelling it, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, it, 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 to to kind of pivot to answer about what happens when I, you know, come across anti-migrant views uh, in my research and my work um, from other people in the field, mm-hmm. um, and and when I say field, I mean you know. Uh, other historians, people in Asian studies, uh, immigration history I have been fortunate enough to not come across that in any okay. presentations I've been in um, places I've been at um, but but I also avoid placing myself in in environments where I think I might confront people with anti-migrant anti-asian views right um, and and, and you know, some people might say, "Well, you're just an echo chamber." Then, well, my answer would be, "Is I, I don't have a lot of time or sympathy or empathy for anyone with anti-migrant views." We talked about, you know, the violence that's been happening right. recently, but also, you know, there, there's been anti-immigrant violence that has happened since, you know, basically the first person decided to move from one place to another. Yeah, uh, and. I, the reason why I avoid engaging with individuals with these views is, like I said, personal safety. But often, these views are not rooted in anything logical. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. they're rooted in nativism and racism, mm-hmm. and they're not interested in engaging in a productive discussion with me. And I find that, you know, having to debate my own humanity, having mm-hmm. to debate the humanity of people who move, who immigrate, is is quite frankly degrading not productive and and futile and you know I understand that there's misinformation out there and there's ignorance and lack of knowledge and and I really do understand this so if people are willing to have a conversation if they are willing to do you know the good hard work to learning about well more about people who immigrate people who move people who look different from them yeah I'm willing to have a conversation with them but you know from my own experience for the most part most people. And 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 I know as researchers we we try and avoid saying all people are most people. Yeah. but my from my personal yeah. experience I have found that most people with anti-migrant views are not interested in learning. Yeah. And you know, when I was younger, I, I was very idealistic and I was like, I'm going to change these minds. But yeah. maybe maybe this is jaded. <laughs> maybe this is trite. But I have yet to come across someone who is determinedly anti-immigrant and racist I, I i have not seen people who who hold those views change their mind right. very often yeah um so you know <laughs> i i i try not to engage for for, for all the reasons I, yeah and, I and it's earlier. a good
0: point you mentioned like part of it that you do not want to engage you don't want to debate your humanity but also you do not have the same luxury as somebody in a different position would have yeah. to you know yeah. Let's have a conversation about this and have a discussion
1: that's that's a really good point and 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 you know I, I should say that that um, I have come across a, a good number of of really great allies who, um, who who do, as you say, have the privilege of being able to more safely mm-hmm. engage with people who might treat someone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. In, in a violent way so yeah um, you're absolutely right like from my perspective and, and, and I, I can't speak for you but I, I think this is what you're getting at it's yeah. like we, we don't have that luxury yeah um, so, so it is good when people who do um, do that hard work
0: uh, for from their position of privilege yeah so we have talked about a lot of difficult to so not just like your research and ethics related to that <laughs> but also you as a person so what is maybe one or two pieces of career advice you would want to give to early career graduate students, right? Who um, are either from the similar background as yours or want to study the similar topics as what you're studying, you know, with so many layers, so many complications, the societal implications, not just the research ones. What are some, you know, one or two pieces of advice you would like to give them? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, so and I think there's, there's so many things I wish I knew, but also so many things that, again, professors and mentors who I've been lucky enough to meet have, have told me. So I guess I'll start there. So when I was starting grad school, actually, before I was considering grad school, um, professors I talked to were very uh, candid about what graduate school is.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and, and anyone who has done graduate school knows that it's really hard. You know, you've you've got you learn a lot but it's very it's very rigorous yeah it can crush your mental health if you allow it yeah.
0: to yeah
1: um it's it's taxing emotionally because of that physically especially if you are someone studying history who where a lot of our work is reading and writing so you're sitting at a desk the entire time But also, but also what many of my professors were very candid about telling was financially and and family-wise, because graduate school will not pay you a fair wage. (laughs) We don't get a, we don't really get a wage at all. They call them funding packages. (laughs) So um, because it's so hard in so many aspects of your life, I I would tell anyone considering grad school or starting grad school, you have to have a very good reason why you want to be here Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's not easy Um, it's not easy at all just Mm -hmm. again like I said not just intellectually but financially yeah and 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 it can it can crush you if you don't know why you're here yeah Um, for me the why that I'm here is that I want to learn not just more about my family history but more about history of people like my family and and I hope that by Learning more about that by you know analyzing by writing by by trying to understand the circumstances that make people or that force people into difficult decisions. I can you know hopefully do uh, good work to help mitigate some of those hard decisions mm-hmm. for people in the future, and that is my why. Like at the end of the day, if I've had a really hard day at work, if I've had a really frustrating day in research, if I've had a paper or a grant application get rejected Yeah, and I can be sad about it. I can be really disappointed, but I know why I'm here and why I want to do it. And for me, that reason is good enough to continue having to deal with the hard stuff of yeah. school that I've yeah. mentioned. So, so I would, you know, I, I think that's my first, you know, bit of advice. You have to know why you want to be here. And if the why is not, because you're so passionate about your work, then you know, maybe have to do some reevaluating, which is totally okay. Which mm-hmm. is totally okay. And it's okay to leave grad school yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I agree. you know, it, it's not, it's not that you're not good enough. It's not that you're not strong enough. It's, you know, there's there's still a lot of things in the university, in academia that are, I'm trying to come up with a with a diplomatic word, but you know, that 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 are that seem to be designed to force people out yeah Yeah. so 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 yeah i'll I'll stop there with that with that um comment um uh the other the other thing i i think i'd like to mention if i was talking to somebody either early on in their grad career is that you know because it's so hard you can't do it by yourself yeah Um, i've heard very often people say you know grad school is super isolating um, you know, it's it, it can be really competitive. Everyone's in it to to be the best. And that's scarcity mentality talking, because we live in a system that you know creates scarcity, um, <laughs> because people want to make more money. Yeah, um, but you know, grad school doesn't have to be isolating. it It doesn't have to, you don't have to do it by yourself. It's really hard if you do it by yourself. You know, I, I would say find, find your people, find people who, can be supportive to you who who support your research who support you as a person who support you as somebody trying to hack it through grad school and you know best case scenario you have different people from all different walks of life people within academia people without so you know when you want to disconnect you have those people emotionally supporting you who can really pull you out of uh, uh, you know <laughs> a very grad student style that you're having but also people in academia can, can be really, really important as well. So for me, um, uh, I, I'm very lucky in, in my cohort, in the history department, we have, I'm not gonna name names, but we call them the responsibility buddies, <laughs> And we're all in the same year and we're all there to be each other's best cheerleaders,
2: mm-hmm.
1: be there to just commiserate and listen to each other when things aren't going so well, you know, um, be there to encourage us to do things to apply for grants that we might ourselves not feel qualified for. And covid's been hard for everyone. Covid's especially uh, been hard for grad students too and and I really don't think that I could be where I am right now heading into my fourth year with with most of my mental health and wits intact if I didn't have that really good team of people that I was able to keep around me and, 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 you know, be there to help me. And, and professors are part of that too. I didn't yeah. mention the profs, but, you know, find a professor, find supervisors who support you. Um, I, and maybe people would disagree with me on this, but I, I think a prof who will support you as a person is more valuable than a professor who is an expert
0: your research I agree with you I agree 100% with that yes
1: yeah if you can have both that's great you're very lucky I'm very lucky I, I do have that but you know it, it's a long haul you, you need good people you need people who, who have your back um, and and Fortunately, I, I've been able to find those people.
0: You know who you are. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you agree too. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Because it is the thing is, nobody is going to 100% be an expert on what you are studying. So you are the expert. You need people who just help you guide through the process and are providing a critical eye on our research, which I think, yeah. you know, if they are a professor, they can do. <laughs> so yes. even if yeah. their field is a little bit different. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes if they're outside your field, if they don't completely agree with you that's even better better yeah because they have a perspective that you don't know so they can push you yeah and if they support
0: you in a good way then that push is you know
1: it's in good faith yes (laughs) they're not trying to tear you down
0: Yeah. yeah so Melanie you mentioned your why do you know what you plan what you are planning to do with that why like what are your career plans future plans where you can put that into action
1: yeah (laughs) that's another (laughs) million dollar question asking asking a grad student so so what are you doing now what are you doing after um i i've got a few things that i've been you know thinking on i think uh in 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 my past short life past short life (laughs) i i do have my bachelor of education okay so i've always been interested in teaching when i was when I was younger, I thought I'd teach high school. I'm qualified to teach history and and math in high school. Uh, but you know, the the more I've been doing academic research, the more I've realized that I want to be able to still teach people, but teach people in the very specific uh subject that I'm interested yeah. in which is Chinese immigration history yeah. and I have been very lucky to to have lots of experiences in public history um I worked at the Royal Ontario Museum um, I got to do different outreach visits and I think in the future if I if I was able to combine you know being passionate about Chinese immigration history telling people's stories with continuing to reach out and connect with not just Chinese communities, but um, different diverse immigrant communities. I want to reach out to immigrant communities of different histories, different backgrounds, and different people who look not just like me. Mm -hmm. People who are white, people who are non-white, we're all immigrants uh, in this nation, unless you're Indigenous. So Mm -hmm. I I want to be able to, you know, reach people from all uh, walks of life with, uh, with some of the some of the things I've learned in grad school. And and, and if that's specifically Chinese immigration history, that's great. Uh, but if it's some of the bigger themes that I've been thinking through themes about immigration, themes about migration, being able to talk to people who are willing to have a conversation yeah. about yeah. racism, about immigration, about why we should treat everyone as worthy of life, that would be amazing for me. <laughs> I think a lot of grad students Uh, love to talk about the research so I would love to continue to do that in a public history setting Uh, sometimes I find staying in the university to be a bit of an ivory tower a Mm -hmm. bit of an echo chamber um, where you know people already kind of know what you're what you're trying to what you're trying to say so if I could do some public education good um, I'd love to do something there Um, if I can go down the professor route that would be great too I know it's a lot more difficult, <laughs> but, you know, if, if I was able to become yeah. a professor who, 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 who has not lost contact with um, some of the community connections I've made, I would love to do that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think even though there's all sorts of different jobs that I'd be interested in, I would be very happy if any of those jobs had to do with uh, public history community connections and and then something something like that I, I I want to be able to do research and have that research do some good
0: mm-hmm.
1: even though that's very naive sounding but <laughs> that is at, at this point in my life how I
0: feel excellent that is it is a noble goal though you know no matter how it plays out and i'm sure it will play out in a way that you are you are imagining because it is something that we need you know in in our in our social life right now so not just in academic life but in our cultural and social life
1: yeah. um
0: so well we are coming towards the end of the podcast so where can people find you if you want to get in touch with you do you have a twitter account do you have a website how can they get into contact with you
1: yeah, um, I do have a Twitter account. It is, it, it's something I, I tend to use more for, for lurking other academics yeah. and, and learning more about, you know, current events. But, but if you would like to follow me on Twitter, I occasionally post. Uh, it's at Mel, um, spelled M-E-L underscore speak, speaking spelled S-P-E-A-K-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Ng is my last name. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I was being clever. So it's not Mel under speaking on Twitter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, excellent. And I will also post your Twitter handle, Twitter handle in our show notes. So people can give you a direct follow. Thank you so much, Melanie. I must say, so not just as a researcher, but uh, learning about you as a person, it kind of expanded my horizons too, right? Because a lot of the things that you talked about, um, you know, some I know of and some were like, uh, forced me to think like, wow, yes, you know, like this is how something can also happen. And this is something that's happening in, in society, but we don't really think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And also when you were, uh, when you were talking about your future plan and what you want to do with that, um, I think that was also, um, that's also a good indication about what you can do as a, you know, as a researcher, because oftentimes, especially for students who are coming into grad school, maybe you come, in, come in thinking that you will be a researcher or a professor, but you were giving Kind of um, multiple career paths, and even combining yeah. them together, mm-hmm. right? Which you can do once you have the knowledge um, that you're gaining. Any parting words you want to say, Melanie, before we before we end the show? I I think
1: I think I've talked a lot, and and, and I think that's that's all people might care to, <laughs> to listen to me <laughs> say. But yeah, no, uh, it, it's just been really nice to get to talk to you. So thanks so much for having me, on.
0: You are most welcome. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to another op episode and we will see you next month with another guest. Bye everyone.